0: This episode is brought to you by Corporations. Yay, who doesn't love Corporations? We are standing with about 40 or 50 other men on a dock in Amsterdam called the Pepper Wharf, in the shadow of a giant canal side warehouse building. An officer of the VOC stands before us, his face shadowed under his large brim hat. The feather on his hat protrudes obstinately out, despite the light drizzle in the air. He shouts at us, Repeat after me. We are about to say our oaths of loyalty to the VOC, a requisite for our five years' employment contract. I promise and swear to the esteemed gentlemen of the States-General of the United Provinces of the Netherlands, as our highest sovereign government, to His Majesty the Lord Prince of Orange and Nassau, as First Captain and Admiral of the Union, and to the reigned honour of the licensed East India Company in those lands, including the Governor-General and Councils of the Indies, her Vice-Governors, Directors. Commanders and lesser chiefs of the lands, cities, forts, and respective establishments of the company in the East Indies. And thereunder will come to be held, once assigned to the ships and thereafter in some other position, to the commanders, captains, skippers, and other of my respective authorities, loyalty, trust, and utmost obedience in the performance of my duties, wherever I am taken or sent." That's a lot of authority. We just swore oaths to it, so we better break it down so you know exactly whose bitch you are now, and in what way. First off, the States General. The Netherlands is now, in 1628, a self-proclaimed republic. Although it has not been officially recognised yet, it is doing more than just holding its own on the world stage. And is becoming incredibly wealthy in the process. Essentially, this republic is a mercantile oligarchy run by the parliament, the states general. Those who hold the power within this parliament are Republicans, our highest sovereign government. So these dudes come first. Next, the Prince of Orange and Nassau. Remember that we are coming out of the European Middle Ages, out of a time where the temporal power complex was run by an aristocratic and royal elite within a feudal and monarchical structure. The Netherlands is doing things very differently now, but that aristocratic and royal elite is still hanging around. They didn't just pop out of the scene in humble deference to modernity. When the King of Spain had ruled over the Spanish Netherlands, His representative in the Netherlands had been the head of the House of Orange, in a position called Stadthouder, King's Lieutenant, or Viceroy. When the rebellion kicked off in the 1580s, the then Prince of Orange, whose name, like most of them, was Willem, had become the military and spiritual leader of the rebellion, as the highest Dutch noble alive. He may well have been crowned a king, had he survived. However, he was assassinated in 1584, and a whole lot of things happened that meant that the Republican parliamentarians could establish themselves as the governing body of this newly self-proclaimed nation. All the while, however, there was always the House of Orange, biding its time in the Game of Thrones, every time the head of their household came of age, it posed a threat to the foundation of the Republican structure of government. Stepping out of our time trip for just a moment and back into the 21st century, today the Netherlands is a monarchical democracy. The royal family is the house of Orange Nassau. So, they did it in the end. But that's a whole different story. So, back to this new republic in 1628, and with its parliamentarian merchants holding on to power, what they always have to keep in mind is the Prince of Orange, who always has a supporter base pushing for a monarchy. So, in our oaths, we also swore fealty to him, but only after having done so to the state's general first. The third authority in our oath, but actually the one that will matter most to us, is that of the company itself, as well as to all inherent forms and styles of authority that we might come under during our time of service to the VOC. All of these authorities will play with, for, and against each other, within the context of a new age where Europeans, like us sailors, are getting onto floating wooden machines to pit ourselves against the elements of a world hitherto unexplored by anyone of our kind. Our experience as a sailor will be determined by all of this, this absolutely bonkers world on the sea, our oaths and the function of this experimental society of the United Provinces, but mostly because of the VOC, its purpose, and what it had become. So what is this great big monolith of a company? Where did it come from? Well, much of it is due to the fact that people really bloody love tasty food. The spice trade is an old and illustrious one. For Europeans and the Anglo-Saxon world, of course, we view history with a Eurocentric lens. From this point of view, the spice trade brought the first instances of globalization in the beginning of a modern age, as European explorers realized and learned how to sail around the world. But this would have been just a spike in a very ancient and widespread trade that must have seen so many peaks and troughs along the way. For thousands of years, spices had been used for flavoring, embalming, fragrances and food preservation, as well as much more. It is, however, their ability to hide the taste of rotting meat in all the time before refrigeration was invented that kept markets around Asia and the Middle East stocked with all kinds of spices, and which was behind the desire for them in European societies in the Middle Ages. These goods originated in Asia and moved westward, going through the hands of countless middlemen along the way, each taking their cut and driving prices up as the goods moved along. Venice, sitting as it did as a gateway to Western Europe, had controlled this Western end of the spice trade for hundreds of years, growing exceedingly rich as it did so. But like all Europeans, they still didn't know how to sail a ship from Europe to the Far East, where all these delicious spices came from. European access to spices on the overland route from the east had, for several hundred years, been aided by the prevalence of the Christian Byzantine Empire, the long-standing remnant of the Eastern Roman Empire, with its formidable and famous capital of Constantinople. By the 1400s, the empire was basically a carcass, but Constantinople still stood, still Christian, and still with access to the overland spice route. In 1453, however, Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks, becoming, of course, the city of Istanbul. Muslim Turks now held total control over the prices of spices in Europe, and this really irritated the Christian rulers and merchants of Europe. Momentum began to build towards European states equipping and funding naval exploration to find a route to the Indies and to the source of these spices. The big issue, as they saw it, was getting around the southern tip of Africa. This was a problem, until the Portuguese figured it out. In the 1480s, a guy called Bartolomeu Dias discovered the solution to this problem. Going straight south down the western coast of Africa was wrought with peril. Plus, it followed a period of going through what was commonly called the doldrums, but more correctly. An intertropical convergence zone. Doldrums sounds a lot sexier, but this is where, near the equator, there is such low air pressure that the prevailing winds are calm, and a ship could sit near motionless for weeks. This, of course, caused further problems with staying supplied and stocked with provisions, and rounding the cape from that approach had proven absolutely futile. Diaz's great discovery, when he was as far south as Sierra Leone on the western coast, was something that would come to be known as the Volto de Mar, the turn of the sea, a westward circulating current. If you were looking at it from above, it is a massive gyre that rotates anti-clockwise. Ships picking up this current could swing westwards, from the African coast and towards South America and what would become Brazil. Then, because of the rotation of this gyre, the ship could swing back to a southeast bearing and approach the southern tip of Africa in a way that would enable it to be rounded. There's a map of this up on our website, www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. When he did round the Cape, Diaz was so far off the South African coastline that he could not even see land. But in March 1488, his ships reached as far as he would go, anchoring near what is today's Port Elizabeth, South Africa. His primary mission had been completed, as he had discovered passage to the Indian Ocean, although he'd also been charged with finding the Indies themselves and, if possible, discovering as much as he could about someone called Prester John, a fabled Christian ruler of the East who never actually existed. He pushed to go further, but his crew refused, so instead of risking disorder and mutiny, he turned around and went home. On the way, he would sail closer to the coast and see the southern tip of Africa itself. He would name it Cabo des Tormentas, the Cape of Storms. Years later, on another expedition to India, he would actually, and I guess hauntingly, perish in a storm near this area. The cape would later be renamed, just to make it even more difficult to pronounce it in the Portuguese, But this new name reflected the bright new age of optimism, money, and spices that his discovery had ushered in. It became, wait for it, the Cabo de Boya Esperanza, the Cape of Good Hope. Now, European ships had direct access to the markets and spices of the East for the very first time. Although they were entering a world and network of naval trade that had been run by Asian, Indian, and Arabic merchants for thousands of years, it is hard to argue that the entry of Europeans into the Indies in this way did not change the whole world forever. Ten years after Diaz's return, he joined his countryman Vasco da Gama, in the first leg of another expedition to this time actually land in India. With a fleet of four ships and 170 men, De Gama set sail from Lisbon in 1497, and following the route discovered by Dias, managed to explore and map the entire trip to India. Nearly a year after setting out, his ships arrived near Calicut, in today's Kerala region in southern India, where all the world's peppercorn had originated. Portuguese sailors in this new age of discovery and colonialization were known to jump off their ships, shouting, For Christ and Spices, as they did so. If you think about it, to sit second only to Jesus in the mind of 15th century Portuguese sailors is to sit in pretty high esteem. So well done, Spices. Over the next 80 years, the Portuguese would build a formidable trade empire, ensconcing themselves within the Asian and Indian trade networks. Their power culminated in something called the Treaty of Tordesillas, whereby the Pope split dominion of the New World in two, with the dividing line running north-south down the guts of the Atlantic Ocean. The Portuguese gained rights to everything to the east, and the Crown of Castile, effectively Spain, gained rule over everything to the west. Never mind all the people and societies in all those as-yet undiscovered lands that had no idea who their new rulers were, They would soon learn. Yearly throughout the 1500s, the Portuguese would send a fleet to their bases in Asia in what became known as the Caheira da India, the Indian Run. Their influence spread eastwards in both trade and missionary work until it reached an archipelago that is in today's Indonesia. This included a group of islands known as the Spice Islands, the Maluku, where all the world's cloves came from, and the Banda Islands, where all the world's nutmeg and mace came from. Controlling these islands meant controlling the product at its source. For most of this century, the Portuguese were the only Europeans who knew how to sail there. The unfortunate voyage of the Batavia will continue after this short break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? were arriving annually. As the Portuguese grew more and more wealthy from their monopoly on the European spice trade, the Dutch merchants in the Spanish Netherlands became their distributors for spices in the north. We spoke in the last episode about Antwerp becoming this great commercial city at this time. Well, the spice trade in this period is a very, very large reason why. In 1581, however, the monarch of Portugal died without leaving an heir, so everybody's favourite antagonist, the Spanish king Philip II, claimed his right to the throne of Portugal and Algarves as Felipe I. By this time, as we well know, Felipe was not in a very healthy relationship with Dutch merchants or nobility, many of whom were in open revolt against him. As the Duke of Burgundy. Well, like the giant sookie pants I often imagine him to be, he took away their spices that were coming from the Portuguese runs to the Indies. If these newly self proclaimed Dutch Republic merchants wanted spices, they'd have to get them themselves. So there, na 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 na. In a historical narrative kind of way that is so cosy and comfortable. This turned out to be a massive error on the part of Philip or Felipe or whatever he wanted to be called. The Dutch were entrenched as sailors throughout the Portuguese trade network in the East, working in India, Sri Lanka, Africa and whatnot. Plus, there were now pissed off wealthy dudes around the Netherlands who were determined to sink their money into getting spices from the Indies. A few cases and characters come down to us in history of how the Dutch got themselves a foot in the door of this lucrative trade. Three Amsterdam merchants funded the acquisition and garnering of Portuguese naval knowledge. Amsterdam was also quickly becoming a world centre for mapmaking, and eventually atlases. Petrus Plancius, a renowned mapmaker of the time, produced what was said to be a detailed route and description to the east. These merchants also funded a sailor, Cornelius de Houtman, to travel to Lisbon in disguise as a merchant to gather information and to verify Planckius' work, and another sailor, Hauken van Linskolten, who had been working for the Portuguese in Goa for years, stole a bunch of maps and everything he learned, and brought them back to the Netherlands. Sweet. Job done. The Dutch now felt confident enough to send their own expedition to the Indies, which they did in 1595. It was funded by the same three merchants who had been planning this for a fair while by now. It's worth pointing out that, by this stage, the Dutch were the best shipbuilders in Europe. They made the fastest and strongest ships, with the most effective holds for getting as much stuff into them as possible. The way they built them was more efficient than any naval effort before them, including the great Venetian merchant navies of the preceding few centuries. This first expedition of four ships that left in 1595, it was well-funded and well-equipped, but it lacked leadership, lacked experience, and definitely lacked luck. It was wrought with amateur dealings with locals that on more than one occasion led to stupid and avoidable violence. There was discontent amongst the crew, scurvy, storms. When it returned after two years, over 150 of the crew was dead, the fleet of four ships was now down to three, one of the captains was in chains and another two had died, and local Indonesian rulers had been left with a less than favourable impression of the Dutch. Despite the misfortunes of this first expedition, the price of spice was now so inflated in the north because of the Spanish embargo, that the merchants still made a small profit on the whole venture. The next fleet, however, would be far more successful, stuffing 400% profit into the pockets of the merchants who had funded it. You can imagine the gilder symbols begin to spring up behind the eyes of Dutch merchants everywhere, many of whom, remember, were these Jewish and Protestant merchants who had fled from the Spanish in Antwerp, and who still had all the knowledge and business contacts that had been developed over the previous century. Now that the Dutch had a foothold in the Indies, they would not relinquish it for hundreds of years. Multiple Dutch trading companies sprung up around the Republic and started to send fleets of ships over to the Indies to fill their holds with spices. But you can imagine, all the local rulers in the Indies, now seeing a massive increase in demand for their goods as all these Dutch companies competed against each other. The rulers in the Indies were in total control, and started to raise the prices accordingly. Everybody was screwing it up for everybody else. This meant that the States General, this body of mercantile parliamentarians who held power in this fledgling country, had a big issue. The power of the States General was always on a knife edge, as we mentioned, remembering that the House of Orange was always waiting in the wings to seize any opportunity of power that they could. Money is the best consolidator of power, and so the leaders of this Republican government, together with the wealthiest merchants and lords of trade, who were all pretty much the same group of people, in the very early 1600s they made a shrewd political and economic move to consolidate the power of the states-general themselves. This shrewd move was to bring the competing merchants of the Netherlands and their trading companies under one umbrella incorporating them into the United East India Company, Het Vereenigde Oost-Indische Company, the VOC. Oh, I said it again. They would be given a 21-year charter that would grant them the monopoly on all trade in Asia. The charter would be consistently renewed, by the way, until 1799. From that point, 1602, any Dutch ship that conducted any trade in Asia and was not owned by the VOC, did so illegally and was subject to the full extent of the law of the United Provinces. Before we get into the fascinating world of the structure of the VOC, which is crucial for the context of the rebellion that's coming, let me give you some sexy information about the company, which was the world's very first international corporation. The VOC would last for 197 years, in its charter, it was granted not only the monopoly rights on the Asian trade, but also the right to its own army, the right to make and enforce its own laws, strike its own coin, wage war, and claim land in the Indies. It was like a weird mix between a pseudo-state and a proxy state, operating fairly independently, mainly on the other side of the world, at a time when it took a ship at least 10 months to get there. It also represented and was validated by this new Dutch Republic, given that both bodies were run by and largely for the same ruling mercantile elite. Over the course of two centuries, the 1600s and 1700s, the VOC would employ over 1 million Europeans in the Asian trade. The rest of Europe combined would employ just under 900,000 over three centuries. Between 1602 and 1796, the VOC sent these more than 1 million people to Asia on 4,785 merchant ships, carrying over 2.5 million tons of Asian goods, which is 2.5 billion kilograms, or for those more imperially inclined, 5.5 billion pounds. For anyone else, just an absolute shit ton of goods. During the 1600s and into the 1700s, the great rivals of the Dutch would become the English. Their competition for naval dominance led to war on four separate occasions, and the English East India Company chased after the strongholds of the VOC for two centuries. They ended up carrying one-fifth the amount of goods that the VOC did, and did so only on just over 2,600 ships. Isn't this sexy information? All this superiority led to the VOC becoming the wealthiest company of all time. At their peak, they would become worth 78 million Dutch guilders, which today would equate to around $7.4 US dollars. If you took the combined worth of the top 10 companies on Forbes' 2016 wealthiest companies list and multiplied that sum by three, you would still be short on how much the VOC was worth. Alternatively, you could take Apple and Google, put them together, and multiply that by five. They were the first company to issue stock, and in a Calvinist mercantile republic, this gave anyone a chance to invest in the company, as long as they had the money to do so. This caused a growth in the middle class that would then have more money and time to educate themselves, and invest in luxury items like artwork. This explosion in communal wealth coincided in an explosion in art and culture. Painters like Rembrandt, or Frans Hals, Paulus Potter, and the others that we refer to as the Dutch masters, they all benefited from the fact that more people could buy artwork than just the usual, you know, church-slash-aristocratic combo that had been the case for so long all over Europe. I am so tempted to go on a rant about how much more this particular time in this particular place impacted and helped create the world we live in today but I will not like I could talk about the wealthy sons of merchants such as Christian Huygens who would become the first person to see Saturn through a telescope or his mate Anthony van Leeuwenhoek who was the first to look at a water drop through a microscope but I won't The point is, though, the money brought into the Netherlands by the VOC lubricated the minds and activities of the people in that society in a way that would enable so many fundamental elements of the modern age. Okay, sorry, I got a little bit emotional in that, but I think that's all the sexy out of the way. Here are the tidy whities of the VOC. The structure of the company was thus. Merchants in six cities in the country had put up the capital for the company, so the company was split into separate chambers that reflected this. They were the chambers of Amsterdam, Middelburg, Rotterdam, Delft, Enkhuizen, and Hoorn. The chambers pretty much ran themselves. The chamber sizes reflected the amount of investment that had come from each city. So Amsterdam, for example, had put in around half of the initial investment. Their chamber had 20 directors. Middelburg's had 12 directors and each of the others had seven. But the top dogs of the VOC was a body known as the Heater Seifentin, the Gentleman Seventeen. This was formed from the six chambers, and if that sounds like a badass mob-esque name for a company's board, then it is because it is, and they were. The men who made it to the top of this tree were the same people who made it to being on the States General. The same families, same class, same money. The individuals who would come and go through the Gentleman 17 didn't really matter. It was the body itself and the gravitas that it carried that would invoke fear, authority, wealth, and power to people all around the world in the 1600s. The same proportional representation existed in the formation of the Gentleman 17 as it did in that of the different chambers. Amsterdam provided eight gentlemen; Middleburg four and the other four cities each provided one. But those four smaller cities would also rotate in the selection of the 17th gentleman. Over the years, concessions would be given within this structure to give representation to other cities, such as Leiden, Haarlem, Flissingen, and so forth. But at the time of us being sailors, this is how it is. So that's basically the structure of the VOC, the most important authority that we swore our oath to. But you'll remember in our oath we also swore to a bunch of other important people, bodies, and positions within the VOC. We swore to the Governor-General of the Indies, who, at our time on the Batavia, is a man by the name of Jan Peterson Kuhn, as formidable a bastard as you could possibly imagine at this time, simply by reputation, a terrifying man. In his two stints as Governor-General, he founded the fortress and city of Batavia, which Before then, and again today, is called Jakarta. His ferocity in establishing VOC domination in Indonesia is legendary, and, from many perspectives, pure evil. It was under his rule and authority that the Bunda Islands, these twin islands where all the world's nutmeg came from, were annexed. He then made it illegal to grow non-VOC nutmeg anywhere else on pain of death. Under the rule of Kuhn, around 10,000 Bundanese islanders were slaughtered for the power of the nutmeg. He is also a great personification for the authority of the VOC. There's a picture of him up on our website. He's kind of like your friend's angry dad when you were a kid, and he was constantly looking at what you might be doing wrong, or how you might be showing disobedience. We also swore loyalty to all the councils, officers, commanders, and establishments of the company, where we are wherever we find ourselves. And whatever we find ourselves doing for the VOC, we'd better do it with obedience, or we will be punished. Punishment varied, but we will explore all of that a little bit later on. So after taking our oaths, we are set to work by the High Botswain, whose name we don't know yet. Packing essential equipment, stringing up the sails and other preparatory work is done over the next few days. Then the whole ship and the crew Set sail to Tessal, an island off the west coast of the United Provinces, marking entrance into the North Sea. It will remain in Tessal until all the goods, passengers and other ships are ready to set sail for the Indies. That day, when it arrives, is the 29th of October, 1628. Unbeknownst to us, there's a storm brewing, just off the coast. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. This podcast has been produced by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani. The music you can hear is the song Fork in the Road by the band Detroit Rebellion. Big thanks to them for letting us use it. We'd also like to thank all those who have subscribed, liked, and shared our stuff online, such as Mary Virginia Avery. Cheers, Mary. Also, a big thanks to those who have donated to us on Patreon, such as Johannes Knobel. Johannes, you're a legend. Thank you. For detailed show notes with more information, pictures, videos, and links to interesting reading, check out our website at www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. Feel free to like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash stuffwhatyoutellme, and follow us on Twitter at the Stuff you Team. You are also always welcome to support the podcast by following our link to Patreon, which is up on the website. If you thought the podcast was worth a listen, please recommend it to your friends, family, or any other history nerds you know. And if you didn't, well, stuff you.